0: In Acts chapter 15, a decision is made. The question on the table was how to keep peace between the different cultural expectations of those who had come to faith in Jesus. And the list of action items they came up with might be a little surprising to our modern ears. But what's really interesting is something that didn't make the list at all. Welcome to episode 57. Acts 15, we're gonna discuss how we should understand the Gentile prohibitions. Well, this is Greg Hall, and you've wandered your way into another episode where I will ask you to rethink something that you thought you already knew about the Bible. So if you're not up for that, it's best to back away from the episode right now. But for those of you that wish to continue on, Those who like rethinking well-established ideas, you are my peeps. And we added another peep this last week, and we added another state to the All-America Listener Challenge map. I want to warmly welcome Alaska to the family, because we now have a listener in North Pole, Alaska. And I think you can guess what this means. Yes, It's going to be a very good Christmas this year for those who listen to the podcast. I mean, I may not know who you are, but there is someone out there who's keeping a list, and he knows who you are. Well, before we get into the things that the Jerusalem Council decided in Acts 15— I feel I need to at least briefly mention the theological discussion around this chapter and its connection with the beginning of the book of Galatians. So Galatians is attributed to Paul. And in the first two chapters, among other things, he describes two times that he visits Jerusalem. The first is three years after his conversion. And the second is 14 years later. And there's a small bit of debate about whether that's 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after the first visit. Not going to solve that here today. But in Galatians, Paul mentions two visits. But here in Acts, Luke has included three visits uh, first one in Acts 9, another at the end of chapter 11, and then here again in Acts 15. And I just feel like I need to tell you, there is a lot of discussion out there about why there seems to be a discrepancy and which of the Galatians visits might line up with the events surrounding the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And again, it's not my purposes on this episode to go much further down that road today, but I do at least want to mention it for those of you that like to work on jigsaw puzzles. Even though this one only has a few pieces in it, it's a difficult one to solve because none of those pieces seem to fit exactly right. And those of you that work on jigsaws know how frustrating that is. And just to whet your appetite a little bit, uh, Witherington in his The Acts of the Apostles commentary says this about the Acts-Galatians controversy. First, according to Acts, Paul has made three visits to Jerusalem by the time of the Apostolic Council. There is little dispute that the first visit referred to in Acts can be correlated with the first one spoken of in Galatians. In other words, Acts nine twenty-six 26-29 is equal to Galatians one through 18-20. Reading the text of Galatians 2.1 straightforwardly suggests that Paul is now referring to his second visit to Jerusalem. The text reads literally, after 14 years, I went up again. Now, if perhaps the majority of scholars think this visit is the same as the one referred to in Acts 15, then either Paul has left out a reference to the visit spoken of in Acts 11.27-30. Or, Luke has invented a further visit, or perhaps bifurcated one visit into two parts, such as Acts 11 plus Acts 15 equals Galatians 2. And then Witherington goes into some reasons why one might consider the Acts 15 visit as equal to the Galatians 2 visit. Here are some of the reasons he gives. He says, identifying Acts 15 with Galatians 2 may be summed up as follows. Number one, both events happened in Jerusalem. Number two, both events have the same people involved in them. Number three, both events deal with the same issue. Number four, the chronological fit is good. Even if Paul meant it was 17 years after his conversion that he went up to Jerusalem, this might still be before Paul's visit to Corinth in AD 50 through 51. Probably it's in AD 49. Number five, both Acts 15 and Galatians 2 have the same outcome, no circumcision required of Gentile converts to Christianity. And the number six reason that Witherington gives for possibly connecting Acts 15 with Galatians 2 is the problem in both cases is in-house. In other words, it's involving the two different cultures of believers, Gentiles and Jews. It's an in-house discussion. So, If you just stop there in Witherington's commentary, you might just say, oh, that's easy. Acts 15 and Galatians 2, it's talking about the exact same thing. But Witherington follows that up with this statement. There are, however, substantial problems with this identification. (laughs) And then it goes on to list in his commentary nine reasons why it might not work that Acts 15 and Galatians 2 are talking about the same thing. So, Welcome to the puzzle. And I'm just gonna leave this one out on the table for you to work on over the holidays. So despite what we've already talked about, the main topic We have for this episode does not involve which visit this is to Jerusalem, but rather the final decision made by the Jerusalem Council during Paul's visit. Again, going back to Witherington's commentary, he says, It is no exaggeration to say that Acts 15 is the most crucial chapter in the whole book. He refers to Marshall being right to note that this chapter is positioned both structurally and theologically at the very heart of the book. And just breaking away from the commentary, those of you that have listened to previous episodes know that in ancient times, the thing put into the middle of a story is often the most important part of a story in the ancient way of telling stories. So the fact that Acts 15 is right here seemingly in the center of the book, for an ancient reader, that would have been an obvious sign that what is happening here is of utmost importance. Back to Witherington. He says, A measure of the importance of this meeting for Luke is shown in that, after it, the Jerusalem church virtually disappears from sight in Acts, and Peter does not appear again. In any case, after recording the council, Luke's focus is clearly on the missionary work in points west of Jerusalem, from Antioch to Rome. So, breaking away from Witherington, In Acts, Paul is introducing the Gentiles to the gospel, and they believe his message. And as they do, some questions eventually come up. Specifically, what are the requirements someone has to check off to be considered a part of this new movement? Now, if you asked yourself that question today, that might seem like maybe an easy answer for us in our day. But back in their day, it was very complicated. For centuries, one of the signs of the covenant God had with his people was male circumcision. And some of the Jewish believers in Jesus thought that this covenantal sign should still be required, even for Gentile believers. But to be clear, this was not only about circumcision, so don't make that mistake. It was about the whole Mosaic law. Here, let's read Acts 15, verses 5 and 6. It says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, so these are people coming out of the Pharisaical Jewish mindset, but they had become believers in Jesus, okay? Just clarifying what's going on. They are Christians. Those people stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after much debate— Peter summarizes their conclusions. He says that God has cleansed the Gentiles' hearts through faith and that there was no need to require them to follow the Mosaic law. And here's how he says it, down in verses 10 and 11. He says, Therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So breaking away from the biblical text, when it says the yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, that's not speaking of circumcision. That's talking about the whole Mosaic law. Oddly, circumcision was probably the easiest part of that yoke. It was all the other requirements of the law that they were not able to bear. Circumcision was just the initial sign that they were trying to do everything else. Here, a little later, James, who is Jesus' brother, speaks to the question. This is uh, in verse 19. He says, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. But that we write to them, and they abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. So, the leaders in Jerusalem write their conclusions down in a letter and send it with Paul to share with the Jewish and Gentile believers on their journeys. And I've got to believe that this letter is really more for the Jewish believers than it is for the Gentiles, because that's how the question originally came up. It came up from a Jewish mindset. And interestingly enough, these requirements are not only shared at this point in the story, but also we see them again in Acts 21, 25, which is about eight years later. In that passage, it says, But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, from blood and from what is strangled, and from fornication. So the order there in Acts 21 is jumbled a bit, but it's the same list. It's eight years later then, and that just shows that the list that they came up with here had some longevity to it. It evidently addressed the problem sufficiently. If it hadn't, we would see that list expanded or changed in some way. So the question I always want to ask, the question really probably on everyone's mind is what do we do with this odd little list today? Abstain from things contaminated by idols, fornication, things strangled, and from blood. Are these things still the only list that we should require of Gentile believers today? What about everything else that we've put on our list of things to do to be considered a Christian today? Well, the author, Savell, in a journal article called A Reexamination of the Prohibitions in Acts 15, suggests several ways to look at this list to try and determine how we should, in our modern day, understand it. He comes up with, let's say, an ethical view, a cultic view, or a societal view. And he examines the list from how each of those views would have seen it in the original context. Here's a conclusion that he comes to. In light of some of the difficulties of the cultic view, which he talked about earlier in his article, he says it seems that a modified view is preferable. That is, that the Gentile Christians were being asked to refrain from activities that even resembled pagan worship, thereby avoiding even the appearance of evil. And he notes that it is possible that some unspecified circumstances were probably driving those prohibitions. And he even quotes another theologian, Blomberg, who suggests that the prohibitions may have been nothing more or less than ad hoc advice. So, breaking away from Seville, uh, by ad hoc advice, what he meant by that? This may just be a list for their particular situation, and therefore, we might need to come up with a different list for our age that addresses our specific situation. And, you know, that makes sense to me. I mean, I don't run into too many circumstances that I know of where things are contaminated by idols. But back then, Gentiles would have. And in our modern day, I am so far removed from the death of the things I eat that I couldn't tell you if they were strangled or not. And along the same route, I do try and stay away from eating blood uh, just on a daily basis anyway. It's kind of funny. One of the podcasts that I listened to, to prepare for today's episode, they asked if this means we shouldn't eat blood pudding, which evidently is more popular in England than it is here in the United States. They came to the conclusion that in a culture where blood sacrifices were being offered to idols on a fairly regular basis, blood likely had a different level of significance than it does in most modern cultures. So, with some of those conclusions, the real question left on the table is, what would a list look like in our modern times if this isn't the specific list that we would come up with given the same difficulties? Well, we have the same difficulties. (laughs) How do we keep peace within the family of faith? What is required? It's this question that is asked often. What are the essentials to the Christian faith? So, as we've been able to look at this list, I think I'm getting more comfortable with it. I think it may have been a short list of things the Gentiles of their day were to be aware of to not offend their Jewish brothers and sisters that shared the same faith. In other words, it was an internal discussion. How to get along with those within the church. Do we ever have discussions today about how not to offend people in the church? Well, sure we do. Maybe not as often as we should, (laughs) but we do. And our list, the things that we've come up with out of those discussions, they're going to likely differ from the biblical example simply because we live in a different culture and at a different time. But something that I find very interesting is that sometimes what's not being said speaks more loudly than what is being said. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's think about what's not on the list in Acts 15. The question being addressed was about following the Mosaic Law. What parts of the Mosaic Law did the Gentiles need to follow to be considered Christians? And circumcision was the initial sign of trying to follow that law. So circumcision got most of the attention in the discussion. You may not realize it, but there was another sign of the Mosaic Law that isn't even mentioned in their discussion in Acts 15. But it was addressed indirectly within this passage. Let's talk about covenants a little more closely. Covenants in the Bible have signs, similar to how we might wear a wedding ring today as a symbol of a covenant that we've entered into. Biblical covenants also had signs or reminders to the parties involved that a covenant is in place. And for those familiar with the biblical story, you're probably very aware of some of these. For instance, when the Lord made a covenant with humanity through Noah, I'm talking about what happened in Genesis 9, he gave the sign of a rainbow as a confirmation and a reminder of that covenant. Later, in Genesis 17, when God established a covenant with Abraham, he established the sign of circumcision. And that sign eventually became associated also with the Mosaic law. So, it might be surprising to learn then that for the covenant God established with the people at Mount Sinai, the sign of that covenant was God's Sabbaths. Here, I'll read to you directly out of Exodus 31, starting in verse 12. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Breaking away from the text now, as I read that, you may have noticed a couple things. One of those things may have been that the first time he says it, you shall observe my Sabbaths, it's plural. And then at the end it says, therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. And I believe that the last statement is regarding the seventh day Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments. But when he mentions Sabbaths in the plural earlier in the same passage, I believe that that probably refers to all of the collective Sabbaths that are included within the Mosaic Law. Let me explain. The weekly Sabbath was a small part of of a highly interconnected list of Sabbath days attached to the Jewish calendar. And when the Jewish people observed the Sabbath, really any of them, they were participating in and displaying the repetitive, ongoing sign of their inclusion in their covenant with God. So let's think about it this way. Circumcision was an initial sign to show that someone had initially entered into the Mosaic Covenant, and then observing the Sabbaths within that covenant was the repetitive sign showing that they were still involved in that same covenant. And for those of you having a hard time getting your head around this, the New Testament has a very similar setup. The initial sign in the New Covenant to show that someone has entered into that covenant is through water baptism. And then the ongoing sign to show that someone is still participating in that covenant is through communion. It's through the taking and the sharing of the table. So let's get back to the question, and here it is. Why weren't the Sabbaths mentioned in Acts 15? They are completely missing from the discussion, or are they? Let me just read a few verses out of Acts 15. Again, starting in verse 19 and going to 22, it says this, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then, it seems good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So, moving away from the text, I don't know if you noticed it there. The weekly Sabbath is addressed right there in the text. It's right in the middle of the whole discussion, and it doesn't even seem to be an issue being considered. Savell, in his article, comes to this conclusion. He says, violating the Sabbath is not included among the prohibitions, even though one might expect it. While it is somewhat speculative, it may not have been mentioned simply because it was not practiced by the pagans. It was not an issue. And breaking away from that article and introducing my own conclusion, I might add that because it was the sign of the Mosaic Law, and that was the topic of Acts 15, the weekly Sabbath was not required of the Gentile believers. They did not say you need to observe a weekly Sabbath to keep peace within the family. And notice what they also didn't say. They did not say that now the weekly Sabbath is on Sunday and you need to observe that. By mentioning that the law of Moses was read every Sabbath and then not mentioning Sabbath in the list that they were making, they were speaking directly to it. Observing the weekly Sabbath was not a requirement for Gentile believers in biblical times. It evidently was not a sticking point between those of faith that had grown up in the Jewish culture. They didn't feel it was a requirement for their new Gentile brothers and sisters in the faith. And I just find that very interesting because for decades, and even in some Christian circles today, that seems to be one of the things that we argue about. We get into discussions about what day the weekly Sabbath is and how someone should observe a weekly Sabbath. Is it Friday night to Saturday night? Is it Sunday? Could it be any other day of the week? Or is the whole concept of Sabbath somehow fulfilled through the ministry of Jesus? We have these discussions, and oftentimes they don't lead anywhere because we can't even get past a simple definition of the terms. It's a cul-de-sac conversation. You know what I mean. We get into them and eventually there's nowhere to go. All we can do is turn around and leave the conversation. But at least in Acts 15, the weekly Sabbath wasn't even a concern. To keep unity amongst believers, there was no requirement for the Gentiles to follow any part of the Mosaic law, even the weekly Sabbath. But for some reason, in our day, we've made it an issue for us. It wasn't an issue for them, but it is for us. And that just seems a little backwards to me. And it seemed so backwards to me that I wrote a book about it. And in the book, I take a look at the biblical concept of Sabbath rest. I define it, I address its purpose within the Mosaic Law, and I look into the things that Jesus had to say about Sabbath. When we get done with the book of Acts in this podcast, I'll be discussing that topic in more detail right here on the podcast. And (laughs) you don't know, but I'm so excited to share what I have found within Scripture about biblical rest. And while the book is not available for purchase until January, if anyone is interested in reading an advanced copy and being a part of my launch team, you can contact me via the Connect tab at RethinkingScripture.com. I would love for you to help promote my first book with me and help get it off the ground and into people's hands. Well, that's all I've got for this episode. In the next episode, we'll continue our way through the book of Acts and focus in on chapters 16 and 17 to see what we can find there. And I really do mean this when I say it. Thanks again for listening. And if by chance you're not wanting to tell your friends about what we've got going here, how about sharing it with a complete stranger? You never know who might need a good healthy dose of the Rethinking Scripture podcast.